Hi, I'm Malak Fuad, and welcome to What I Did Next from ANT Media. We're currently on our season break, and we'll be back with new episodes in September. In the meantime, I wanted to share my conversation from last year with businessman, art collector, activist, and academic Sultan Saoud Al Qasimi. It was a great conversation about his life's pivot points and his shift to academia. So let's listen in. Sultan is someone I have long admired from afar, a man who has worn many hats over the decades, businessman, art collector, activist, academic. A proud son of Sharjah in the UAE, Sultan's nationality, heritage, and deep sense of what it means to be Arab today is the thread that links all his work and interests. Sultan came to the attention of a wide audience in the Middle East and beyond for his activism during the 2011 revolutions in the Arab world. Initially helping Western journalists make sense of Arab language media, Sultan eventually became a source of news in his own right via his Twitter account. Of course, Sultan's story begins well before 2011. To understand who Sultan is, we look back to the early days of the UAE and discover a young boy in Sharjah in the 1980s. It was his family life and his outward-looking parents who helped mold his philosophy and, crucially, his love of art. Sultan and I discuss how this deep interest led to him building an immense art collection that takes in modern and contemporary artists from our region. We start our discussion today with our icebreaker questions. The first question is based on the Malcolm Gladwell book, The Tipping Point. I asked Sultan what personality type from the book he most associates with, a connector, a salesman, or a maven. Although I identify with personality traits of all three, I think I tend to uh, relate mostly to the connector. In my life, I felt always that as much as possible, good people should know each other and good people should help each other. People should help each other in general, uh, but I think especially good people should help other good people in order to progress in the world. And, uh, and this is what I've set myself out to do for almost 25 years, whether it was in my, uh, in my salons back home when I was a teenager, in majlis, as we call it, whether it's um, introducing people online to each other just for no reason other than I think that they would fit well together. I feel like it's important that we, re- we as human beings reach out to each other and try to further uh, the, uh, the goals of, of uh, enhancing humanity and bettering ourselves. I feel like that's a, a good fit for you. And it's also one the one I identify the most with. I enjoy making connections between people. I enjoy to see that my instinct is right on, on those things. But I think also, uh, from what I know of you, a maven sounds like a pretty good description as well. Information specialist. I mean, there was, there was a period in time, uh, in 2011, if we can go back to that, where you were the source of information for um, entire swathes of people. You know, journalists who couldn't speak Arabic were relying on you for uh, immediate uh, translations. If I may, I think, uh, you know, being in that position, being in a position where you see an opportunity, you see a possibility, and, 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 you, and you try and share some of the knowledge, some of the access that you might have, I think that's very, very important, especially in the world today. And there are there are now words for such individuals on uh, social media. There are there are there are these are jobs. I think that that have come to life over the past few years that didn't exist a decade ago or twelve years ago. 
And so, yes, I'm. Uh, I, as I said, I feel like I identify with all these uh, these traits, and and I was I was honored to have been part in a, to have played a minuscule, even tiny, tiny part in what happened 11 years ago, uh, and and when what continues to happen in some places as well. Our second icebreaker is based on social media. Does Sultan, who was in the past intrinsically associated with Twitter, have a social media preference these days? Certainly, uh, if you ask me this question a decade ago, I would tell you hands down, Twitter was my preferred um, platform. Um, I also still use uh, Facebook, but not as much. But certainly over the past four to five years, I have um, used Instagram more than any other platform uh, and I feel like I've gotten back from it more than any other platform and I can tell you if I may elaborate that I don't have legacy issues with uh, with Instagram I have legacy issues on on Facebook and on Twitter as in my political engagement uh, uh, from 2008 to 2014 or 15 has uh, already set in people's minds who this person is and uh, I get a lot of uh, people who have expectations and who uh, have uh, preset notions of who I am and what I represent and, and, and what I post. And when I decided to pivot over the past few years into less uh, posts about politics, let's say, and more about art and culture from uh, West Asia, South Asia, North Africa, East Africa, the part of the world that I feel mostly connected to, I felt like there was some kind of pushback from Twitter and from Facebook. People saying, why aren't you posting about this? This this thing's happening in the region. And I felt a little bit of pressure. Um, on Instagram, it was a bit easier uh, because I wasn't as active on Instagram 10 years ago. Instagram wasn't really as developed. And, and on Twitter, uh, people... Uh, the, the conversations have become a bit problematic for me. Maybe it's the people I follow. Maybe it's the people who engage with me. But I found myself muting a lot of people. I found myself uh, trying to disengage from people. I found the conversations becoming a bit problematic. Uh, and uh, I am unable to sustain that level of, uh, of engagement. Uh, and, and so I decided to slowly, slowly uh, pull back. I still admire it. I think it's a very it's a fantastic platform for those who can use it. But for those mired in legacy issues, I think that we, we come with an added uh, baggage that we can't uh, disengage from. It's not easy to say I was posting about politics for eight years, but now I really just want to do art and architecture. People don't yeah. accept it. I think people like to pigeonhole people and, um, and they almost feel offended when you dare to do something else. Um, so... Since you are uh, you are using Instagram more now, um, what would be if you could only follow five people on Instagram or five accounts? Who who would you pick if you had to delete everyone else? Okay, so this is a very very difficult question uh, to answer, but I have uh, struggled and I have thought about really what are the accounts, Malek, that add value to my life. I would like to be, to start with an account called Arabic words and then underscore let uh, zero, I believe. And so this account presents uh, phrases and words that uh, the uh, that the Arab uh, that the Arabic language provides us with that we sometimes forget how beautiful our language is. 
and and we, and sometimes we just don't know the origin of words and what these words mean. And I remember one of their posts, Malak, was uh, basically the same word repeated six or seven times, and each one of them uh, had a different meaning. And and just the, the, for example, the number of ways you could say the word love in Arabic is, is endless, and there's so much positivity going on to the second account that I yes. really like. And these are not in any uh, in any order; these are just accounts that I really like. Um, an account that I've been following the past two years is Brown History. So uh, Brown History finds a lot of um, interesting details and uh, characters and individuals from uh, from my part of the world, the part of the world that I am most uh, interested in. And they, they give you background. So they give you backgrounds about their history and uh, their, uh, their, their culture. And I remember just an account they posted uh, 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 recently was when the acclaimed Indian uh, singer uh, Lata Mangeshkar passed away. They came up with this lovely post about how Lata Mangeshkar uh, was uh, inspired by Uncle Soom. And so this is something I didn't know about. I didn't know that there was this connection between South Asia and North Africa, this connection between Egypt and India, two countries that really mean so much to me. So that was a wonderful, wonderful example of, uh, you know, the post that Brown History comes up with. I'm very interested in this. I don't know any of these uh, accounts, so I'm going to go mm. and look at them now. Yes. <laughs> uh, another account I really like was set up by uh, a couple of young women, uh, one from the Gulf and one from Europe, and it's Methqaf. Methqaf, which means uh, some kind of knowledge or intellectual uh, knowledge. Methqaf, uh, from the Arabic word thaqafa, which is, uh, which is uh, culture or, or knowledge. And that account uh, posts images and brief histories of artists from North Africa and West Asia. So, uh, and, and there's always uh, something new and a beautiful artwork. And, and the fact that it's not too much information, but you get a little bit with every post, I think is really wonderful. That's really interesting. Did they interview you? Uh, yes, they did interview me, I think. And I wrote an article for them uh, a year ago when the acclaimed collector, Ramzi Dallul, passed away. I wrote an article for them. But that's not why I recommended them. <laughs> I no. would recommend them regardless <laughs> of the interview with, with me. Then there is an account of a friend of mine. And I, I want to mention her because she does so much research that I, I really admire the energy that she puts in the account. Uh, uh, and her name is Nadine Nuruddin. Nadine Nuruddin is an Egyptian uh, woman, and she studies in uh, the UK. And she posts a lot about modern art from the region, especially women. And I have been um, trying to expand my knowledge about women artists from North Africa and West Asia. And I think Nadine, as an individual account, is a wonderful account. Uh, to follow. And she's a student, uh, Sultan? I, yeah, I believe she's uh, doing her uh, MA in London uh, th this year. And uh, so it's a wonderful account. And for instance, uh, recently when uh, the Jordanian artist Muna Saoudi passed away, she uh, found an old interview with her. Um, and, and she always uh, cites the sources and she always like she, she really does make a, a yeah. make an effort, and it's a wonderful job. Then there is an account. It's called Emirates Books, and uh, it's an account that finds uh, images from the UAE from the nineteen seventies and eighties. 
which is a which is a very personal subject for me. I I don't know if I can recommend it to others, but it's a subject for me where I, I find them posting about uh, old teachers from the UAE that made a difference. My mom was once featured, I think, there uh, a couple of years ago as a teacher. Um, old buildings, old the first schools, the first hospitals, and so this might not be for everybody, but for me, it yeah. makes me nostalgic and it makes me connect to the UAE. Um, I would say it's not professionally run because, for instance, you don't have the sources, you don't have the the, the right, the images are not copyrighted, um, but it's it's just for me a fun account to follow. There are many others, but I think these are five accounts that I wanted to highlight. But that's really nice, that last account that you mentioned. I mean, that could even be the, the beginning of, a, of, a, of an exhibition, actually. Um, if, if I'm sure you have old photos somewhere of your childhood and, and all, the, all the, the growth of the UAE, it could be very interesting to put all that together and create something with that. That's right, uh, Malik. In fact, there are many other accounts like Emirates Books that have to do with Iraq, with Palestine, with Egypt. Yeah. And so there are many accounts that are very, very local uh, that I think appeal more to people who lived in these countries or people who are interested in, you know, what... Um, this country looked like in the 70s or 80s uh, and i think it's important for us to uh, to to recognize where we were where we are now so that we can we can decide where we're going next what, what we want to do i'd love to hear a little bit about your childhood um, and about uh, growing up in Sharjah, um, your father, you, I know your mother was a teacher. Um, what was life like uh, when you were growing up? So I was born in Sharjah in 1978 uh, in a neighborhood known as Little Palestine. And then we moved to uh, a new neighborhood next door, um, which, which had all my family members around us up and down the street. They, all the neighbors were our cousins or uh, second cousins. And so it was a, a lovely childhood. We would leave home on bicycles and go and visit each other and have lunch here and, and play in the sun in the extreme heat. And we didn't mind it. And I always surprise myself and I say, well, it wasn't cooler in the 1980s than it is now. How did we how did we stand and play football in the sun and not complain about it like we do now? And uh, and so I had a really nice childhood. I I was able, to, I think, even then to uh, manage my time. So I, I would play with my friends, but I would go back and read. And this is something that I think I was able to uh, balance better than others uh, because, the, you know, playing was very uh, enticing, uh, constant play. But I felt like I needed to read and I really enjoyed reading uh, poetry and reading short stories. Do you have siblings, Sultan? Yes, the, uh, I am the fifth of seven. So I have three sisters and three brothers, and I am the fifth. And I was very, uh, I was very close to uh, my mom uh, growing up, uh, but I was a bit distant than, from my dad. And I think this was a typical um, sort of uh, Arab, uh, maybe even uh, uh, Asian, African uh, family, where the father, the patriarchal figure, is a bit distant from the family, working hard and earning and uh, being uh, the provider. Uh, but also this idea that, you know, your father enters the house, you stand up, your father, you don't sit until he sits, you don't eat until he eats. There's this protocol that doesn't exist in some families, but you see it in some other families 
where the, 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 your, your dad is almost too precious to talk to. And so really it was, uh, it was a very strange relationship where I was very, very close to my mom and not so close to my dad. And it was only when I was 20 that I grew closer to my dad. When he fell ill, he had a stroke in 1998. I was 20 years old in my last semester in university when I was in France. And I left school and I went back to look after him. You were lucky that you had that time with him, even if it was a short time. And it's precious. Um, I know that your parents were very um, uh, uh, into art and that they would take you to museums and you were very exposed to art from a young age. But how did you independently then decide that this is something that you'd like to delve into more deeply? So my, uh, again, my, my mother having been a, t a teacher, my father uh, being really uh, educated until high school and then uh, being really self-taught after that in terms of his business acumen and his uh, professional skills, he gained them on his own and not through uh, university. Uh, they were they were quite uh, cultured in the sense that I remember uh, listening to Uncle Thum at the house at home, Nagat al Sagira, uh, listening to uh, Farid al Atrash and Abdul Halim, but also listening to poetry. My father would read poetry, and so I would hear that, and I was familiar with a lot of poems. Uh, but in terms of modernity, modern art, modern history, that is something I feel like I gained on my own um, because I was when I was a student in Paris. I took advantage of the city. I, I, I got a subscription to all these museums. I would go to the Musée d'Orsay. I would go to the Louvre. I would go to the Pompidou and many other museums uh, between the ninth, uh, and the Institut de Mondarab, of course, the Arab World Institute in the 1990s. And then when my father fell ill, uh, Malek, we were really bound first by my father's wheelchair uh, and his slow moving. We were bound by the number of places we could go to in the 19, uh, late 90s and early 2000s. There were only so many cafes that had access. There were only so many parks that had access. Then there was the summer months. So where could you go? There's only so many times you can go to the mall. Um, and so I thought, well, let's go to galleries. And, uh, and I remember going to uh, uh, this exhibition in the early 2000s with my mom and my dad. Uh, and the exhibition was held at the Dubai Chamber of Commerce building, which is on the creek. And it's a beautiful glass building. Um, and, the, and the ground floor had an exhibition space that I believe is usually reserved for uh, 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 products and goods that, you, that, these, that the companies would market. But for some reason, which I still don't understand, it had a major exhibition, an art exhibition. And so we walk in. And we see this exhibit of two Palestinian modern artists called Tamam al-Akhal uh, and her husband, Smail Shamoud. And they're both very, very famous modernists, active since the 1950s. And so we go in, and this was an exhibition of figurative work. And it was about Palestine. So my dad starts explaining to me and starts saying, well, that looks like it could be Yasser Arafat. That looks like it could be such and such leader. And, and my father naming them, and my mother naming them and identifying them, it really sparked an interest in me. And, and uh, it, so it wasn't an exhibition that was, you know, super elitist and, 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 and uh, abstracted or works that you don't understand and installations or things that are a bit uh, inaccessible to the general public. It's individuals that you recognize. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That, you know, I didn't know that there was this history of modern art, even though I was familiar with Western art. That was a very interesting way of telling the story of the Arab world through visual arts, which I never thought about before. Well, 
it's it's stuck with you, hasn't it? Because you're doing that now. Yeah, here we are, twenty years exactly. Later. And I want to talk to you about that because you know you've developed your own collection, um, and I want to just I would like you to explain to me how how you developed that, and and I want to understand from you if you consciously set out to collect work that was political in nature, or was it purely that it was? Um, I know that the the prerequisite had to be modern, and I believe you wanted it to be Arab. And you were looking to get a cross section from across the different Arab nations. Is that right? Uh, that's roughly right. Uh, when I started buying in the early 2000s, I didn't have a plan. I bought works that I thought appealed to me. I used to travel to India a lot, so I bought a lot of Indian art. I used to travel to um, Turkey, uh, and I bought a lot of strange, strange artworks that I don't even recognize today. I don't even know who these artists are. So just like I think any endeavor. Any human endeavor, it, it it changes, it transforms, it it morphs as time goes by, and 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 you start realizing that okay, well, what's important for me is although again the region I identify with is South Asia to East Africa and North Africa, I need to concentrate. I I have limited resources when it comes to financial resources, but I also don't have access to the other languages as much as I like. But with Arabic, it's my first language. I understand it completely, and I can uh, I can relate. It's my story as well. And uh, there were a lot of people who were acquiring Indian art and Iranian art uh, and Ethiopian art and Turkish art uh, and doing a great job. But who's acquiring and Pakistani art, of course? But who's acquiring Arab art in general? There was only one or two others that I knew of, and I thought, let me try and to to do this. But Malik. Initially, the collection didn't have a direction. A, two, it was contemporary in nature, and three, it was male domin- uh, dominated. Can I just stop you for a minute, Sultan? And can you explain to me and to the the listeners the difference between modern and contemporary? Okay, yes, that's great. So I, I don't think anyone can really answer that question uh, completely because there's a quote, there's a famous quote where. Uh, there's a scholar who said you cannot uh, prescribe a a date to the beginning of modernity or the end of modernity and the beginning of contemporary art. It is like saying when did pollution start and end, and when or when did traffic jams start. But in my understanding of Arab art or West Asian and North African art in general, I would look at the beginning of modernity from the early 20th century until the 1980s. Is, that is that is modernity for me. Contemporary art are really artists born from 1970 onwards. I see. So anybody born after 1970 could be a contemporary artist. Works that were created from 1990 onwards. Someone could give you a different metric. Someone could say, "Oh no no no, contemporary art really is the last 10 years." But for me, anything from 1990 onwards is a contemporary art piece. Interesting. All right. Um, so your your collection has. Then eventually evolved, and you, uh, you, you have the Bergil Foundation, uh, which now um, exhibits around the world. You have a, a space in Sharjah, but then the permanent collection uh, moves around to different exhibitions around the world. Is that correct? That's right. We have been fortunate to have a large space at the Sharjah Art Museum. Uh, very grateful to them and the authorities in Sharjah. 
but then we're very active in showing the works around the world. We have now pieces on uh, on loan uh, to museums and uh, all over the world. Uh, and this is something that I'm keen on expanding. I'm keen on giving an opportunity to artists from the region to show we we even I mean I shouldn't be saying this out in a, in a, in a podcast, but in some cases we cover the costs of shipment so that we encourage museums to borrow art from the region. And the collection is how many pieces now? Um, it's difficult to count, but you can think of about a hundred, a thousand, five hundred, a thousand seven hundred. It's difficult to count because some works really are, uh, uh, you know, they're diptychs or they're ten photographs. Uh, do you, do you count them as one? Do you count them as ten? For you. Does uh, art have to be political for it to be worthy, or does it have to be have a political element for it to be a collectible? In your in your opinion, I think that not all art should be political. I think artists who just want to paint landscapes and uh, and flowers uh, and portraits should be uh, able to do that. But I think that uh, some artists need to express themselves politically. Some artists need to make a position or take a position about a national cause, a, uh, a gender cause, a uh, human rights cause. And this is something that I am attracted to. I am interested in political art, but we still acquire works that are not overtly political. And if I may say that in many cases in West Asia and North Africa, works that don't look overtly political are in fact very political. When you think of Palestine and paintings about cacti, these are very political works. Somebody who's not well-versed with the region would think, oh, this is just a painting of a plant. But it's not. It's about national identity. It's about independence. It's about as uh, asserting uh, oneself. It's about Palestinian rights. So all these things that one must take into consideration when you think about West Asia and North Africa. When we come back, I talk to Sultan about the joys of academia and how he has found his niche. That's right after this short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fuad, and you're listening to What I Did Next with our multifaceted guest, Sultan Saud Al-Qasimi. My podcast, as you know, is, is, um, is based on people's pivots in life. I see one major pivot in terms of the trajectory of your life. Uh, the collector in you, I believe, is the basis, and I, I don't think that you've pivoted from that. I think that's still your foundation and your and your connection from that is what leads you to other things. What in your mind are your main shifts or pivots? Malik, that really is a great question. And, it, and, and just thinking, even from the title of your podcast, it made me think about what are the pivots in my life 
and I'm very happy to have been able to pivot uh, and still keep a foot in the other in the other lives, but be able to uh, have the flexibility to 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 go into to reinvent oneself and and think of oneself that we only have one life, we only have uh, th this is it, and so do I really want to do just one thing? all my life and nothing else. I know that some people would, would like that and I understand that's totally fine. But I thought, well, maybe there's another thing I can also do. So if you think of my life between 98 and 2007, 8, it was really a uh, mostly a person involved in, in business and, 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 and investments and man fund management. That is where I dedicated most of my life. Collecting for me, although it started in 2002, was a side thing. Uh, in 2008, I started teaching in the UAE, very lightly uh, part-time teaching in a college in Dubai. Uh, then, the, then the Arab Spring happened, and I was able to, I stopped teaching, and I was able to take time off from my uh, business life, and I dedicated 20 hours a day, uh, especially at the height of the uprising in Egypt, uh, and Tunisia, and Libya, and Syria in the very first month. And then I couldn't. I found myself unable to, to give more. I don't have the energy. And so I withdrew. And a lot of people were disappointed, but I know myself. I, I know how much energy I can, uh, I can give. And I like about myself that I retreat when I feel like I cannot give anymore. I recognize my capacity and I, and I stop myself from being overloaded. And I saw the meltdowns. I saw the burnouts of many people. And you know some of them. Uh, some of them who had meltdowns publicly because they were unable to pull back from this super, super busy, super public life. By 2016 uh, or 17, I pivoted into academia. And as every year, uh, with every passing year, I was able to uh, disengage from my family business and, uh, and engage fully in academia which complemented my art collection. So now I am no longer involved with my family business, which took most of my time 20 years ago. That heady period, and we were all in the, I mean, I was in the region as well, that heady period of the Arab Spring, that uh, year, that particular year, 2011, did you burn out? Were you fearful for yourself at some stage? Um, did you, I mean, you've just said that you, you couldn't sustain that pace. Um, was it purely from a, a, a self-care point of view or were you in, in some sort of fear? Were you feeling a bit in fear? Uh, uh, it's all of the above and I will elaborate. Uh, first of all, I I'm proud of uh, my role uh, during uh, the, the Arab Spring. I'm very proud. I have zero regrets. And uh, and I uh, and I still very feel I feel very strongly for all the uh, the causes that people uh, aspire to, uh, whether it's uh, more freedom of expression, democracy, more human rights, better standard of living, access to education, access to healthcare, uh, all these things that women emancipation, all these things that we all aspire to. This is something that I will never in my life change my mind about, and I will to the to my dying days say that I am proud of. Uh, uh, you know my role, and and I and I wish things turn out to, to, for the better, and not for you know not how things turned out to. Um, the second thing is yes, I had a fear of burnout. I was exhausted. Remember, it was just Tunisia. By the time Tunisia ended, Egypt started uh, on Jan twenty fifth, and so and then you you see Yemen and Libya and Syria, and and it just it was nonstop. It was exhausting, and so I pulled back. 
Uh, and I said, I am unable to to give it. There is no way. These are institutions yeah. that do this. Yeah. There are companies that have three different shifts and each shift has uh, many people. So I, I can't do that. And and so I, as proud as I was, I was, uh, I was, I'm equally proud of having, of having pulled back when I thought I had to, for my personal uh, sanity and, and health care and self-care. But also, and I won't, and I won't uh, try to sugarcoat this, there were instances where I was uh, warned and there were instances where I was told uh, off and there were, whether it's, uh, whether it's a certain authority or whether it's a, a family or even, even uh, hearing through the grapevine. That, that there could be something. And I thought, you know what? Uh, I did my best and I think it's time for me now to, to, to move on. And, 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 and just like I wasn't a career academic, I'm not a career um, a journalist or a career uh, activist or somebody who bases their entire life. And I admire those who do. I admire that because there are people who have spent all their lives on being activists. Uh, and I cannot do that. I, I did this for a, few, a period of time and I, and I wanted to move on. I'd like to move on uh, to the academic uh, world that you're uh, immersed in now. Um, and I know that uh, it was from, you said 2016 was when it's really kicked in in the, in the US for you and in Europe. Uh, give me a sense of the different types of programs that you were involved in. And, um, and, the, and I know that they've all been related in some way to uh, always to the Middle East. Um, some were more uh, political in nature, and now it's taken on a, an art focus. So at the peak of my activism phase, I was approached by a center at Stanford University uh, known as uh, the Center for Democracy, Development and Rule of Law. So I did a summer program with them and they taught us about the importance of rule of law. And then the following year, 2014 to 2016, I was affiliated with MIT and I was a director's fellow. But by 2017, uh, I was approached by, uh, actually 16, 17, I was approached by Kevorkian Center, which is the center of uh, New York University uh, dealing with West Asia and North Africa. They call it the Near East. That's very Orientalist of them. Uh, yes, I, I wonder. It's quite an interesting <laughs> name. I, I haven't seen it any, uh, elsewhere. So, uh, and, and I and I have some assumptions on why it's called the, the Near East Center. But um, they had they had approached me about a a class about the Arab Spring, uh, and I thought, you know what? Uh, let me. We can cover the Arab Spring, but let let's look at uh, graffiti of the Arab Spring, and not the politics of the Arab Spring, the art of the Arab Spring. And I conducted this. Uh, uh, this workshop uh, over a number of weeks in the spring of 2017 at uh, NYU here in New York. Um, and then the following year, um, I, was, uh, I, I went to a number of universities, uh, beginning with Yale University. And how has the, the, the subject matter evolved uh, with each iteration? Um, uh, I believe the last one you were at Harvard, and now you are in, in, uh, in Columbia, correct? That is right. You had mentioned that you began by looking at things in a chronological order by decade and very sort of systematically. And now you're looking at things more in terms of themes. How, how are you enjoying that more to, to what you had be, the way you'd been teaching before? So, uh, yes, the, the class has, uh, has evolved. Uh, I can tell you um, the readings have evolved. I've, uh, I've come across new readings over the past five years that has been published new books. There's so much new scholarship from the region. 
but also uh, because I uh, sat in and audited so many classes in these universities, I'm so fortunate to have sat in classes at uh, Columbia and at uh, Georgetown and at Yale, and I learned from seasoned professors. And one thing, for example, is to let the students lead the class discussion. And this empowers the students, but also takes the responsibility of your hands. So it's really a win-win. And I remember doing a workshop at Yale University on teaching, and they said that the best classes are where the teacher lectures for 10 minutes, and then the students take over the class, and the role of the instructor is to moderate the discussion and make sure that everybody's engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing with regards to the themes, uh, in, 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 in some classes, I've included themes like um, uh, U.S. government policy towards the region. In some classes, I've included uh, themes of urbanism, and I, and I add them and I remove them depending on the, on the classroom environment. I also ask the students in the second week, do you like the way that the, the class is structured? Would you like us to change anything? We do art analysis. Doing art analysis, Malik, uh, putting up an artwork and the students start dissecting it and analyzing it, I think gives an opportunity to a lot of students who are not as well-versed in the region to speak up about what they think this color means or what they think this uh, person wearing uh, white would uh, um, w- would signal. And so uh, so I have a lot of fun in my class. That's the I'm most sure. important that's yeah. the most important thing for me is I'm enjoying it because if I enjoy it, I know that I can give more. I, I find it very refreshing that uh, it's kind of like reverse colonialism in a, in a sort of a very crude way of putting it that you know you're from the middle east and you're teaching in western universities about about our world and for centuries it's been the reverse and you know maybe this is going to create a, a generation of professionals <laughs> who are a little bit more in tune with what's really going on here you know and and that they would not get from uh, textbooks in their high schools, that they would not get from classic uh, teaching methods. I, I want uh, I want to t- share a story with you. In one of the universities I taught at, and I can say this because there's so many of them now, that my class was selected uh, as an example of diversity within the university for the university to apply for grants from the U.S. government. And so, so the university had to apply for grants and they had to show that they're offering diversified classes. How did that make you feel? I, I don't know. I felt, I felt, I, I felt so, I, I mean, it was so interesting, right? That, so without my class, all your other classes wouldn't qualify <laughs> for a grant. As in this, this means that the university will have to go and, um, and review all the yeah. classes they're offering. Do you think that um, academia that you've been in now for for several years, do you think that's the right place or a good fit for you to affect change? Or do you see another pivot down the line into something completely different? Do you do you find yourself in the space where you're, you can affect change in this in this realm now? I believe so. I mean, I've had over the eight universities I've taught at, some of which I've taught at multiple semesters, I've uh, I've had 200 students, and I don't think all of them are going to be scholars of uh, West Asian, North African art. Uh, but but I feel like there's a bigger understanding and appreciation for art because they tell their friends, 
and they share the resources with their friends and they post online and, and there's this ripple effect that goes on and on. And so I'm hoping that that this would not stop with, with, with my students, but that they'll carry it forward with them and they'll educate their children and they'll tell their nephews and their nieces about this. And additionally, is this is where I am happy. This is where, and, and, and it's important for me to be, to be content in life. You know, I um, in preparation for our chat today, I went and I did some, I looked up some of your previous uh, interviews, especially some of your videos. And you had done uh, in October 2011, you had spoken at the Ford School of Public Policy. And you talked in great detail about the Arab Spring, its origins, um, and and where you thought it would end or how, how it would pan out long term. And the thing that struck me was you looked a bit like a defeated man. <laughs> uh, you came across as someone who was exhausted mm. and who was, um, you know, uh, burnt out, like we said earlier. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And and then, um, you know, when you and I chatted the other day informally and now in the interview, it, it's a it's a 360. I mean, you're you're like a completely different person. Um, you're 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 smiling, you're upbeat, you're you're passionate again about what you're doing. Um, and and it's it's. It just shows, you know, the that you're in the right place, I guess, for yourself now. You know, I can tell you a story of why I was uh, why I was exhausted <laughs> that day. You can never watch that interview. I'll tell you that over two weeks, I had to give seven lectures in seven different cities. Wow! I flew from Dubai to Geneva to London to New York to Washington to Cambridge, Boston, Massachusetts to Michigan, and somewhere else. And every other day, I had a huge lecture. By the time I landed in Michigan, I remember uh, Juan Cole, the professor at the University of Michigan. He came to see me and I said, Professor Juan, I need to go to a pharmacy. I need vitamins. I don't think I can stand up. <laughs> and I had a huge program uh, and, uh, set uh, ahead Malek where I would meet with uh, the provost of the school and then the dean of the uh, department and then uh, some professors at the, at, this, at the department and then I would meet 20 on a, uh, on a um, smaller meeting 20 uh, of the leading students and they would have a one on not one on one but a group chat with me then I would then there would be the lecture then there would be a reception uh, sorry the reception then lecture then dinner it's a lot and yeah of I, course I, I swear to god Malik this is the only time in my life where when I was dropped home I went to sleep in my clothes. I had, <laughs> I had no energy. I had no, I just collapsed on the bed. I didn't, with your shoes on. <laughs> with my, I think my shoes on. I didn't have the energy to take off my clothes. I, it was just important for me to last the day. So that video that you see is the tail end of 14 days, nonstop travel, nonstop talking in some cities at two events, one in the morning, one in the evening. And, uh, and I'm, I'm happy I did it. To be honest, well, well you, the, the, to be to be uh, to be honest with you, I mean, it it the the lecture was fascinating. So you 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 came across, you know, your, the what you were saying was was uh, was amazing, but you just looked exhausted. <laughs> I was exhausted. I was yeah, super yeah. exhausted. I'm so impressed that you uh, that you uh, found that the sort of course you're running now at Columbia and that you've been running for a few years. Do you think that we'll ever be able to have something like that in the region where? You're looking at artwork and looking at the connection between culture and politics. Is that something that would be welcome here? Would it be allowed? 
I believe so with some adjustments. So I believe that if I teach this class in Egypt, there must be an adjustment to one class. I believe if I teach this class in the Gulf, I have to adjust one or two classes. I believe if I teach this class in, uh, in, in most parts of the world, I have to be attuned to the, the, the needs, uh, but also the regulations of the country. And, I, and I'm no longer dogmatic. I'm no longer in, in the sense that it's either everything or nothing. And I would say, you know what? I will make my point uh, come through without being too explicit about it. In most cases, Malak, I find that the students are much more bold than I'm, uh, than I am, speaking about uh, countries, speaking about politics and policies. And I find myself really in awe of these kids and how smart they are. Yeah, and, this, yeah. uh, and this is something I believe that also exists in, in my part of the world. In closing, just on a personal note, what do you see as your long-term aspirations? Where would you like to be? What would you like your, your legacy to be eventually if you had to look back? Uh, Malik, I am very happy with where I am today. I, I don't like to make this sound very negative, but I've lived a great life. I've had, I've had wonderful experiences. I've seen it all. I've been everywhere. I, I teach at the most elite universities and schools in the world. I interact with some of the smartest young minds on this planet. I've had a chance to talk about the beauty of my region for the past 20 years, and I get paid for this. I get paid to spend time with smart people. I get paid to, to lecture or to, I get invited to talk about the beauty of my region. And so I'm very, very content with life. And if my life were to end in the, in, in the near future, as much as I'd like to live for many, many decades to come, I am content with what I have achieved. I see people who have lived longer lives than me, who haven't achieved or who haven't, in their, in their understanding of what is important, they haven't achieved what they wanted. And I feel very, very happy. Maybe, maybe a couple of the things I would like to do is to perhaps build a museum for the collection. I'd love to see that. But even if not, I'm very, con very content with life. I'm very grateful for everything I've had. I'm grateful to my late father, my mother. I'm uh, grateful to the, uh, you know, to God for giving me all these opportunities. Uh, and I'm thankful for them. And I, I want to persevere as much as possible and keep and keep at it. Uh, and I, I don't have an aspiration to be somewhere better because I believe I am at the best possible position now. Sultan, I can't thank you enough. I mean, this has been such a joy and so much fun and just fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Malek. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malek Fuad, and is co-produced by Shirag Desai. Please remember to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on the show. Just search for What I Did Next.